Hi there, my name is Pat Evan, and uh, welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where, where is, is all the talking lads? You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could, and still do, for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You yeah. regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that aims to use football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today's guest is the one and only Pat Nevin. Now, usually at this point... We would have a little bit of chat, a little bit of an introduction to the podcast and, and to us, to me and to Ryan and to Ant and perhaps do a, a quick introduction to the guest. But you already know Pat and Evan is, that's why you're here and I don't want to waste any of your time or any of ours. So I'm just going to hand you straight over to the great man himself, Pat Nevin. You're listening to Man Marking. Hi, well, uh, I'm Pat Nevin. Um, uh, used to play football uh, quite a long time ago, actually, for a variety of clubs uh, in England and in Scotland, and uh, in Scotland national team. And then uh, after that, uh, went on to, well, PFA chairman when I was there, then I was chief executive of the club, and I've done a, work, a lot of work on TV and radio, uh, and that was kind of my job that I'm quite known for. And now I write and do a lot of radio stuff, um, more importantly than that, my husband and a father. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I love my music, and uh, I could go on forever. I've just written, I've actually just written a book. All and right, that's, cool. That's 120,000 words. That only took me till I was age 28, so I'm not going to go on. You've heard <laughs> so is that a, an autobiography as a path? Yeah, kind of. Um, I don't think it's like a normal football autobiography. If I'm going to be absolutely brutally honest with you, there's as much music in there as there is football. That sounds fantastic. Um, but there's a, you know, tackling a lot of different issues. Um, some things that were really dear to my heart that were important to me during my career, such as uh, the fight against racism um, and any other um, ways that people are treated unfairly or unjustly, uh, which I've sort of campaigned for all my life. But there's uh, tackles on Huge amount of areas um, from homophobia to music to pedophilia, strangely enough. Um, All right. And, yeah, so it uh, doesn't look about. All right, brilliant. I'm looking forward to that. I look forward to that. And one of the, the big questions we always ask Pat is who do you support? Who's your team? Well, I've got two teams. If you're Scottish, you're allowed to have two teams. Um, and this is the weirdness of it. Um, my team in Scotland all my life until I was mid 30s was Celtic. And I was a big, big Celtic fan. And I changed. And I'm now a fanatical Hibernian fan. Um, this is my son. And uh, it's a long story. I often give a glib answer as to why I changed. It was musical differences. Uh, it was an old <laughs> NME line. And uh, just, it was just something I couldn't really cope with. There was a lot of sectarianism around Glasgow with the Celtic Rangers stuff. And I just, I just didn't have any time for it. Um, and uh, so I kind of, I went... I went local and I went native because I live in the east coast of Scotland and uh, Hibernian's my team now and I, I dearly love Hibs. <laughs> uh, in England, uh, I have to be honest, I mean, all the teams I've played for, I have a real sort of passion for and love for. 
but if I had to be absolutely pushed on the spot, it is Chelsea. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for it, but that's not to denigrate the time I had the uh, Tranmere and Everton, because um, I had brilliant, brilliant times there and still look for their results and still basically support them when I can. Yeah. <laughs> but you always have to give one, and I, I, I'm always honest and fair and upfront. Yeah, superb. Slightly edges it for me. Ryan and Ryan and I are both um, both lifelong Tranmere fans, so uh, yeah, no, this is a this is a real pleasure being able to to speak to you, Pat. So yeah, um, just before we move on, I just I, I forgot to say at the beginning, I just want to say thanks for for you coming on and thanks for your time this evening. It's uh, it means a lot to for us to you to give up your time and what have you. No problem. It's a pleasure. It got me away from Brian McClare, who was hanging about with this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's one of my best friends and always has been. And uh, to be fair, it's uh, he's one of the oddest people I've ever known. And, and I like odd people. Uh, no, but he's uh, good friends. Spend time with Brian. But yeah, it was nice. Just back home now. Um, I've had a, a lot of back spare time. So it's, I'm very happy to do it. Fantastic. Um, and this podcast itself is about mental health and, and particularly mental health in football. Could you give us an idea as to why you agreed to do an interview for us, Pat? Well, well there's two. And I, again, I'll just be brutally honest with you all the time. Number one, if people ask me to do interviews and I can help, I do them. Um, generally, you know, it's good people that are interested in, you know, either promoting the game or a cause or an idea. But if there's a particularly good cause behind it, then I just will do it. I will 100% give the time and make the effort to, to give my time. Um, and when I specifically looked up what your kind of original raison d'etre was, um, that was a stick on that I would do it because certainly in my time in football, I watched from a very young age what I clearly could see were mental health issues with some of the players. Um, and they weren't being dealt with in any way at the time because we know back in the 80s, etc., you know, Men, well, I don't know if it's much different now, it's changed a bit, but men just basically didn't talk about the feelings, the thoughts, the worries, the fears. And certainly within football, it wasn't the case. You were, that was seen as a weakness to show any weak, to show any weakness and, you know, it was frowned upon. Um, and I always thought that was weird, but I came from a very different background from the rest of the players because I'd been studying, doing a degree, and I thought that kind of male machismo, you're too strong to be hurt, was a stupid thing. Um, and we're very happy always very happy to talk about my thoughts, my feelings, my whatever. And what it tended to lead to is if anyone did have a problem, they came to me. Um, and how much I was able to help maybe point in the right direction some things and just lend an ear. Um, the amazing that players over the years came and just talked to me because they felt they could um, because I was much more open, I think. Um, and then by the time I went to the PFA and became chairman, yeah, well, I was playing uh, Tramway Rovers. Um, that was something we really started working on. And that came initially from a lot of what we started helping players with various addictions, um, from drugs, from alcohol, gambling, sex, you name it, them all. Um, and that's something that we realised that... I, I, I actually don't know if it's more prevalent with footballers, um, but I know there were some very specific reasons why certain footballers got it, and which were quite surprising, you know, that... And we can go into that later. So, in short, that's kind of the reasons why. Yes, of course, I'm going to do this interview and talk if I can help. Superb. I, I, it is an interesting question, Pan, and, and especially since we've been doing this podcast, I've wondered. I want, and I don't even know how you would even how you'd even quantify whether there's more um, 
like a higher percentage of footballers who kind of have uh, mental health problems compared to kind of the the, the general public. I, it, it, it's an interesting one. I wonder if in such a high pressure environment and in such a, as you say, even today, such a sort of macho environment as well and, and, and the pressures that come with that, it's probably, it does exacerbate a lot of things, I would imagine. In, in some ways, yes, but I'm not convinced by that. Um, over the years, yes, there have been a lot of players that I've known had had specific problems and many wide and various problems. But the pressures, if you're unemployed and you can't get enough money for your family, that they are as big as any pressures you've got. The television camera on you, and I would suggest more. Um, pressure isn't, you know, it's nothing got to do with what the actual pressure is. It's your ability to cope with it and your ability to wrest control if you possibly can of the situation. Sometimes it's impossible. And most of the time stress, which is uh, obviously the lead into many of these things, um, well, sometimes it's the lead into the, the problems. You know, it isn't, some, some people can go to war and kill a thousand people and walk away and seem unscarred. Some people can't take the, the pressure of a game of football. You know, it's not, there's, there's, no re, there's no rhyme or reason a lot of the time. There's no good or bad in it. It's just an ability to cope with a set of circumstances and uh, what you're going through at the time. So, and, and of course, there's no point in anybody, you're good at this, you're bad at that for me. It's just your situation and where you find yourself and, and your personality. And sometimes, obviously, the difficulties you've got with him, uh, which obviously psychology has to look Yeah, absolutely. I think that's... Um... I think that's the, the the best way almost to look at it, isn't it? it, it there's no point in kind of comparing yourself to what other people are doing. It's it's about how you cope with with every thing that presents itself. So, just going back to your kind of early life and your sort of the start of your what I would say probably be a love affair with football it started when you were when you were young playing football with your dad in in the garden. Was that right? Uh, yeah, well, not even in the garden. My dad took me everywhere to play football. Um, out the back. You know, there's a school at the back, uh, so we'd walk across to that, and uh, I would train every day with my dad um, from the age of four or five. And uh, he was he was coach of he was basically he's a basically worked for British Rail, but he loved football. He was a boxer himself before that, but he loved football and uh, he wanted his kids to be healthy. We didn't come from a wealthy area, um, so the good idea to do something that kept you you know, in shape, fit, healthy. But then he cost a lot of money and a ball and a bit of space <laughs> doesn't cost <laughs> a lot of money. Um, but also there was a passion for it with an obviously come from Glasgow. There is that there. And that's certainly something that you know, my dad instilled it in all of us. There was, well, I'm one of six, uh, four boys, and uh, we all love football. We all love playing it. Um, my passion probably of actually playing it just continued longer than the others. Um, certainly my older two brothers, Michael and Tommy, they'd been good enough, I think, to make it as professional at some level. But it's not just about being good enough. It's about being good enough. It's about being dedicated. It's having a love of it. It's getting the breaks. It's being lucky. It's all those things as well. And and, and I, it just so happens, you know, I all both of them, they make on Tommy, they um they, they stopped playing football at 16. I'm gonna actually turn this down and keep on getting lots and lots of messages and they stop doing this. Um they actually stopped to go and do a degree. Um, and kept on playing football for fun. I did the same. I stopped playing football when I was 16, expecting just to go and do my degree. Um, I'd been signed for Celtic beforehand in an S form, but I had no intention or indeed interest to becoming a professional footballer. <laughs> and uh, 
So I went and did the degree, but I could still get my kick out of football. But playing with any team, the Sunday League team on a Saturday, I'd go and watch Celtic on Saturdays, and you know, I was very, very happy. And um, that's the direction I was going. And then uh, all of a sudden, I kind of fell into it again because I was spotted playing against uh, Clyde. And uh, the, the manager came up to me and he said, uh, he said uh, I played against Clyde, I thought it was the reserves. It turns out it was the first team. And I scored a couple on one particular cracker. And uh, <laughs> I was just having a laugh with my mate. And uh, the manager, as I walked off, said, do you want to come and play for us? And I said, no, not really. I'm studying, I'm doing a degree. And uh, well, he fortunately happened to be a lecturer as well as the manager, Clyde. And he said, well, we're only part-time, so it wouldn't affect your studies. And I said, oh, I just play football for a love of it, mate. I'm not that mad. I'm not bothered. He said, well, we'll pay you 30 quid a week. I said, where do I sign? Because <laughs> <laughs> as a student, you think, yeah. Yeah. He also yeah. told me there was bonuses for wins, you know. And uh, so that was then, within 18 months, I was in the first team at Chelsea. And it was just mental. It was just mm. like, Hey, what? And I turned Chelsea down for a year, an entire year. I said, no, I don't want to do football. It's, I love it. I love playing it. I, I mean, I, I would argue I loved playing it more than anyone else I know. And that continued through my career. But the big thing is, and this is where we get back slightly to the subject we're talking about to some degree, is I could see that football became who these people were. And I didn't want it to become who I was or what I did. Um, I could do it, but I didn't want it to be who I was. Um, and I just saw that that could become a danger. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of considered by the time I was about 18 that actually, do you know, if you got your head around it, and remember, it's, it's just a game, you can be totally dedicated to it, but it doesn't need to be who you are. And I thought that would be much, much safer for me mentally because it's so incredibly unlikely you're going to make it, make enough money, stay in the game. Um, you need to be good. You need to be very good. You need to be fit. You need to stay fit. You need to be lucky with injuries. You need all these things to happen. And I thought the odds were rubbish. So <laughs> I made sure that I had this backstop. Um, and to be honest, it, it's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Celtic turned me down when I was 16. I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't signing for them, even if they offered me a contract. But it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it gave me an overview that life should be a wider thing. Um, and maybe get back to what we were talking about a few moments ago. That's one of the reasons why a lot of the players really suffer from stress because they have nothing else. Yeah. That's it. 100%. If that fails, not only will they not be able to earn, not only will they not be able to support families, but actually it's who they are. And if who they are is considered in their own mind a failure, well, that's hell. In any job, that's hard for anyone. And, and I never had that. And that's I always knew I was lucky for that. It didn't make me better than anyone else. It's just I figured it out really early. And you, you, you. One thing that's that, that comes across, Pat, is as you say there about your kind of the different interests that you've got in your life. You, you said there about your both of your brothers went to um, universities to do their degrees. You obviously were. Um, set on doing yours as well given that your kind of relationship with 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 football came from as you say a lot of influence from your dad and training you up and that sort of thing a lot of the time with those types of um relationships it's kind of like 
that dad would be very keen on pushing you into being a footballer. Were you also given that kind of uh, motivation to to go to school and do your studies, and was that always something that was kind of reiterated to you when you were when you were younger? Well, my mum and my dad, and particularly my mum, the the pressure to do well at school was much bigger, much much bigger. Um, I can never remember anything. So training my dad, my dad came to every boys' club game. I played every school game. You know, it's it's constant playing football. Never once in all those years did he say you should be a footballer. Not once, not a single time. And um, I did it for the love of it. He kind of thought I was good enough. I disagreed, probably, and I, but whether I was or not didn't matter either way. He never put any pressure on me. We just loved it. And there's something about doing something. If you do something you have a passion for, that you love, and you remain doing it for that reason, especially if it's a creative thing, any of the arts or you know, anything. And I would put football in there as well. If you do that, with the love of it and not through fear of failure, you'll be better. Most creative things you'll be better at if you do it in that way. It's a hard thing to juggle because, and I'll not, I'll not lie about it, you know, various parts of my career that was hard to juggle. I always had the backstop. I'd done two years of degree, I just need to go and finish the last one and I'd go and do something else. So I always had the backstop, I always had the safety net. Um, but my dad, many, many years later, and you know, it's a big part of the book that I've read. I've written. Um, my dad had told my brothers he'll play for Scotland when I was like something like nine, and they laughed, and I would have been embarrassed by that. He never told me. <laughs> um, if he'd have told me, I'd have said, you, you, "Honestly, you're looking such rose-coloured specs. You really are. You have no idea about." And of course, he was right, and I was completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but there was never pressure, ever, ever, for a millisecond pressure from my parents. The pressure from me. There's massive pressure from yourself, but not to do anything other than your best, to maximize your potential to be your best. Not to win things, not to get a career, but to do your best. Now, whether that's writing an essay, whether that's writing a book, whether that's DJing, whether that's playing football, just do your best. You know, and it's, it's culturally, that's what was that's what was drawn into you. Give up your best. Do you think that's why you've gone on to do so many sort of different things in different areas and been able to be a success at sort of, as you say, you, you were obviously an excellent footballer. You've gone on to do punditry. You, you know, did work at the PFA. You've got your, your, your DJing that you do. There's loads of different elements to the stuff that you do. Do you think because you have been ingrained in you not to kind of go into it with an expectation of success or failure, but just going in and going, I want to do this and I'm just going to try my best and see what happens almost. And not just see what happens, but, you know, do your best, but not just for yourself, but for everyone around you. Mm-hmm. When you have that kind of very social attitude towards it, which was bred through my parents um, and even my, some of my school teachers as well, and when you've got that sort of attitude behind you, you realise, you keep it in that perspective. I mean, I keep on going back to it. I was kicking a ball about it. It's not that important. <laughs> my, daughter's a, my daughter's a doctor. She's in the COVID wards during the middle of the, wor- the worst of this. That's important. You know, mm-hmm. I never, never forgot that. I never at any point felt my job was any more important than my brothers, who both my sisters, who went on to become teachers. I think it's more important. It paid differently, but it wasn't more important. In the wider scheme of things, you know, yes, it has a, you know, a notability and it can have some importance because it gives happiness and it gives joy, which is, again, a brilliant thing to be able to do. But is it more important than teaching the next generation? 
I don't think so. The <laughs> one thing it can give you is the opportunity to, you know, maybe give out good ideas and maybe help educate in certain areas um, in the midst of it all. But beating that, to be honest, I'll be honest, was giving the joy. Uh, give, and there is a selfish bit as well. You love winning. It's great fun. Um, but I try to explain this to people. and it, It's very difficult in the modern age when everyone keeps on saying, you've got to win, you've got to be the best, and all that sort of stuff, and I kind of yawn. If I made a great goal by beating three people and sophisticatedly drawing two others and then clipped it to the back post from John O'Rourke to score with a header, I would love that much more than me scoring a, a hat-trick because I'd done this creative thing. Mm. And A, I get some joy at the creativity, real joy at the creativity, but people who are watching would have went, wow, that's great, and smiled and enjoyed it. So yeah, absolutely. that's your outlook, and it never changed. And that's your outlook. It, you, it just seemed to me to make it, it seems, see, the thing is, it seems logical to me. It seems simple to me. It seems obvious to me. You see, people look at me in the game and go, eh? <laughs> You're joking? It's all about winning. And I've got a friend called uh, Heather O'Reilly, and she's got 200 caps, much more famous than I ever was, uh, for 150 caps or something like that for the US women's team. She's won World Cups and everything. But she's brought, brought up in this American thing. You've got to win. You've got to be the best. You've got to be a winner. Yeah. And she's lovely. And and I admire her attitude. And then I tried to explain mine to her, and she was, looks at me as if to say, what planet are you from? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's interesting. But it kind of did, I'm going to use a flipping phrase here, and please don't take it too flippantly. It kept me sane. Mm. It really did. It kept me sane, because all the other stresses that I could have been thrown at me, you know, they just never touched me. But I knew I was lucky for that. I went to the manager, John Neal, Chelsea, and he watched me for a year. And he, he put me in the, the first team at like 19. And uh, he do the he do the team talk. And at the end of the team talk, he turned around to this skinny wee kid in the corner and said, and by the way, you lot, give him the ball and you'll win. Now, how did he know I could cope with that? How did he know I wouldn't buckle? Mm. How did he know I could cope with the attitude of other older players who make that a wee bit sniff sniffy about that sort of thing being saying to this scrawny wee kid in the corner and he, he got me outside one day it was on a golf course i'd never played golf and i was standing with him in the first tee at st andrews having never played golf and took me up there and i was saying what's going on here and he said i want you to stand here for an hour uh, why and just just watch so i watched these people teeing off at St Andrews. Now, if anyone's a golfer knows it's the widest fairway in the world, right? And I'm watching these good golfers, top businessmen from America and Japan, slicing these balls out of bounds, trundling 20 yards along the ground, panicking and shaking because they're at St Andrews, because they're nervous, because they can't cope with the pressure. And he looked over at me and goes, right, your turn. And I smacked one up the middle. And he goes, never lose that, mate. Never lose that. You don't feel it. You're never nervous. Keep it. You don't know how important it is. Keep that attitude you've had because other people can't maximize their potential because they play through fear and you don't have it. And it was a really nice thing as if to say, look, you've got it, but look what happens if you lose it. So mm. it's a brilliant, yeah. brilliant thing for the manager to do.
Yeah, that's so true. And I suppose it means like as you as you say there, I suppose a lot of the time with with sport particularly, I think people get so wrapped up in in trying to succeed that they forget to enjoy it. And that's what it's you know, ultimately that's what it's there for, I suppose. You talked there about you moved down to, to Chelsea from from Clyde, which was only sort of eighteen months after you sort of first started playing there. How did you kind of adapt to that move? Because just obviously you've moved a long way away from from home. You're still quite young at that age. You're still very new to the football environments. How did that? How did you cope with that that transition? Uh, do you know? I don't think you'll ask a better question today because um, you're right. That <clears throat> was the most dangerous moment for me in my uh, possibly life. Because you go down. I mean, I'm a city boy from Glasgow, but you go down to live in London. I'm living in a one bedroom. No, I wasn't. I was living in a bed set. Um, I was skint. I was playing a year, but I was on 180 quid a week. Um, so I didn't have much money because the rent was 100 quid and you get taxed 60. So <laughs> I didn't have much money. Um, um, we won some games, so I got some bonuses so I could survive. But it was the loneliness. It was being alone. And it was, I was a strong personality. Um, but having no big friends group down there was a difficulty. Uh, I didn't really hang out with footballers. Uh, we didn't have a lot in common. Um, yes, I had, I'd go and see gigs. Um, but that first period, that was probably the most dangerous period. And it, and it was dangerous because there would be, fortunately enough, I had a number of friends came down from Glasgow and visited me uh, every week or two. Um, my dad came to every game, never missed a game. So even if I didn't see him, he, sometimes, he got trained train down, watched the game and get trained back up. And I'd, if I got to see him, I'd, I'd wave at him. But not usually with the 30,000 people there, you can see it. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was a very dangerous time. And I look back now and I didn't even consider it at the time. But the people, and I had my girlfriend at the time, who stopped seeing each other quite soon after that. But she came down a few times and really helped me. And my, my now wife, we met, we met, but she was still in Glasgow uh, studying up there. So... You know, we didn't see each other much. So that was a, a difficult, and I would say it was only six months, but that was a long six months. Um, so I immersed myself in stuff. And I happened to be a fanatical reader, so you know, I was a bit heavy reader in those days. <laughs> <laughs> Sartre and Dostoevsky and you name it, and Camus. Um, so I immersed myself in that. I was also a fanatical music band so I was collecting music etc and I love the John Peel show so that's something to keep me company every night and uh, I suppose amongst many people John Peel was my friend on the radio because I'd listened to uh, Peely every night um, which was weird though because we ended up becoming friends <laughs> we ended up becoming great friends um, and that was about a year later and stayed friends the rest of his life so that was a dangerous period um, I, th I can almost hear your next question. Did I ever think of chucking it and go back? <laughs> <laughs> um, and to some degree, no, I didn't. I, I'll be honest with you, no. Uh, I so, when I trained with the team and watched the team and played, I got in the team really quickly, the first team really quickly. I wasn't expected to, but I got in really quickly. Um, and when I'd done that, the joy I was getting and the reaction of the Chelsea fans. And that's why you asked me to start who I support as Chelsea fans. At that period of time, they, they were so brilliant to me. They were so understanding of what I was trying to do. 
they related to me. It was a bit, ended up being a bit of a cult figure down there. Um, but they don't know how much they helped me. Uh, they really don't know how much they helped me uh, to get through that first period. And then slowly but surely, you make friends in London. To be fair, there's usually a bunch of Scotsmen and Scotswomen. <laughs> we kind of stick together. Um, we met people through gigs and bands. Most of my friends are musicians and stuff. Um, but it took a while. In that first period, you know, when you moved to a new city, whatever your job is, whatever you're doing, when you're on your own, it's a hard, it's dangerous time. And that, I found that difficult. And you, you've spoken in the past about kind of not wanting to have the almost the fame and the celebrity and stuff that comes with being a footballer and, and, and kind of shying away from that when you were younger. How did you deal with, obviously, the increased exposure? I mean, as you say, you were a, a clad and then almost the next minute you're in a Division One English team at Chelsea, you know, big club. How did how did you kind of reconcile with that change? I just ignored it. Um, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> you know, what I've never understood really is, you know, for, for the really big, 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 huge names these days, you can't actually go anywhere. You, know, you get hassled all the time. But the vast majority of people are a wee bit in the public eye. You know, you go places, you go to the shops or you go to a gig or you. People nod and say hello or come up and say a few nice words. What's the problem there? What's the mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as my problem only was when people come up and they give it the kind of, you know, we are not worthy sort of stuff. And you, you, you talk to me for about a minute and you'll just drop that because you'll realize I'm not that guy. I'm not, yeah. I'm not doing that. I'm just, a, I'm just a bloke. I'm just this guy that you'll talk to. And I hope you're going all right with and it's the two things that, I've, that I didn't like in being a footballer, which was you know, the fame thing. I just wasn't interested. And, and I'm not. I just, it's dull. It's really a bit pathetic. I just don't get it. And some people do, some people love it, but I just don't see the importance of it. I'm much more interested in the people I'm close to liking me and me liking them, you know? So all the rest of it's periphery. And basically, in the public eye, they don't know you. They know a third-person version of you, the one that's presented to them in the media. And they don't really know you at all. Um, so social media these days is even worse for it because, you know, mm-hmm. I, oh, I don't do Twitter because the amount of vile abuse I get on mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, I'm quite a nice guy. I'm pretty sure I don't really deserve that. Back and cope and just ignore it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Not every, but not everyone can do that. No, people are traumatized by it. So I got a really early lesson, you know, in saying, well, it's actually not me. It's this version of me. And when you meet me, you'll hopefully within two sentences realize you're just talking to a bloke and you're just talking to somebody normal. Um, and you can have a laugh and a giggle with you. So the two things I didn't like was people looking up to me and people looking down on me. <laughs> That's the two things I didn't like. <laughs> and you get that you got both of them when you're a professional footballer. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. And do, do you think? Do you think when you were first at Chelsea, because you got straight, you know, you were very quickly involved in the first team and very quickly uh, an important member of the first team. Do you think that helps you kind of bed in because you instantly kind of felt a part of of, of what was going on there? No, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> not really, because I didn't. I didn't really feel a. A part of it, I mean, a part of the team when I played, but 
Everyone always says this, oh, your teammates and you're all together in the band of brothers. To be honest, it's generally not like that. It's just, it's honestly, they're, they're selling you a line there. It's work. It's your job. I mean, I ask anyone who's listened to this, do you honestly hang about with your workmates all the time? <laughs> <laughs> you don't, do you? No, true. And you've got, and that was the same with me, and they're great people, and I like them. I like some of them I didn't like at all, particularly the racist ones. Um, but most of them I got on perfectly well with and a handful of them I really liked and they're still great friends to this day but did I hang about and was a part of that no not really you know I, I had my own life apart from it so did it help that I was in the first team well it helped that I got a few quid uh, that I could survive um, but was I living off the success and that making me happier I don't know not, not a bit but not massively uh, the fans saying they liked what I was doing that helped because I was giving out happiness mm. and if they understood that that's what I was doing then that helped definitely um, so definitely there was some help there um, but had I not made the first team for a year, a year and a half and then after the second year I'd gone back up and go back to my degree fair enough, I'd have shrugged my shoulders and got on with it yeah, yeah absolutely and, and you, you mentioned a couple of times about you're sort of, you've been very sort of vocal about, as you say, about racism in football, homophobia, things like that. We um, very recently did an episode about uh, Justin Fashionu. And I, I mean, I was born in 92. So that kind of period in the sort of 70s and the 80s of, yeah. of, of kind of the really quite vile racism and homophobia that was quite prevalent amongst football and obviously in society generally but it, you know it kind of it almost amplifies it in that kind of environment how did you how did you sort of deal with being in that environment as someone who's obviously thinks differently than a lot of people did at that time well yeah i mean it's never bored me anybody I, I used to get it quite a lot um you know because i was different so you must be gay um mm. i just am not to be gay but I remember um, certain places they say, you're just a wee whatever. And I'd say, yeah, what if I was? So what? <laughs> it's like, wouldn't, I'm not offended by that. Yeah. And I used to have lots of chats with uh, this young player coming through just um, a couple of years younger, three or four years younger than me, Graham Lasso. And uh, we became great friends. And uh, Graham got all the same stuff, but even more than I did. And it was in papers and all that. And Graham wasn't gay either. And Graham was really upset about it. And I used to say, Graham, why are you offended, mate? <laughs> you call me gay? You say, well, I'm not, but so what if I was? Um, and Ga Graham said, yeah, that's all very well, Pat, but you're not getting as much as I got it. And I said, well, I still wouldn't bother, but I accept it. It's okay. But what I just said to people was it's a normal part of life, you know, and just you can share whatever you like. You're not going to get offended by it. Um, I think it belittles you and your understanding of society and humanity as well homophobia was around there was certainly a lot of it within the game but probably you would see that with any group of young men mm. uh, at the time i don't think it was any better or any worse within that environment of general young men going about so what they needed was education um and as the years have gone by happily we have become more and more educated as society um, and more mature as a society so various groupings are now more accepted than ever was before the i mean i've written a whole chapter on homophobia in my book so i don't think you get that in any other books except for football <laughs> and my thoughts on it 
and where it is just now and why it was the way it was. And so it's a complex thing. If I could jump right to the end and say, I think it'd be okay now. I really do. Now, that's easy for me to say um, because I'm not gay. And the first gay player that has to come out now, if there's plenty, there are gay players playing. It's been, I, mean, mm. I know of one who was playing in my time. Um, but, you know, the, it's, not, it's up to them to come out when they want to come out. And there is a fear and an understandable fear. And there's a variety of reasons why that fear is. But I think it'll be fine there. I really do. Uh, there'll be some stuff from come from the terrace. Well, there won't be anything come from the terraces or the stands just now. <laughs> but there will be some stuff in social media, but that will happen to every single person. That is, you know, that just happens in social media. Within the game, if that player's good enough, we'll be fine. I'm yeah. really, really confident about that. And people say to me, yeah, you say that, but you can't know. Well, I don't know. Of course I don't know. Mm. And it'll be a very tough one for the first high-profile player to come out. I often say to them, have a look at the women's game. Yeah. Admit how many women are openly gay and no one gives stuff? And, you know, okay, if you're Megan Rapinoe or whatever, and you're kind of out and proud, you know, you will still get your, your losers that are having a go on social media. But in reality, she's a heroine. And even in the US, which has large areas of it, which is not the most forward thinking. Hmm. So I look forward to the day. You know, I really do look forward to the day. I do often talk about it a lot. It's just because it's one of the subjects that others don't talk about. And yeah. I'm very, very, very comfortable talking about it. And the reason why they don't talk about it, and I know the reason, is because people say, oh, if you talk about it, he must be secretly gay. Well, think that if you like, because it's not offending me. <laughs> yeah that's it and i think particularly as you say pat as 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 when you you played it was obviously a lot more prevalent in terms of the, the kind of open abuse than it that it is now and i think yeah i think that you make such a good point about the women's game i think the fact that there is sort of the 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 uh lgbt and the women's game kind of the way they can go hand in hand and it's yeah. it's almost not even a it's not even a discussion point. It's not, it's not a it, just, point. it just demonstrates exactly where the men's game's lacking in that in that respect. It's, it, it's, it has been lacking. But as long as people like me and hopefully some others keep on standing up and saying, you're welcome. You are welcome. Mm. We, we will when you stand up, I'll be standing at your shoulder beside you. And there'll yeah. be more of us. And there'll be a lot more than you think will be standing mm. beside you at your shoulder. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, and of course, that, that's my problem is football's got plenty of ills. And I I could talk to the cows come home about some of the ills of football. But I won't take the ills of football that it doesn't deserve. Um, and it, if it comes and a, a, a gay player comes out and doesn't survive in it because he's gay, not because he's not good enough, but because he's gay and the abuse he gets, then I'll be hammering football. Mm. But I'm not going to hammer it until it happens. Yeah, you know, I, I can't do that now. I, it's not fair for too many people telling me something that is the case that isn't the case when it actually happens. So that's something that you know we look forward to, and hopefully in the future. And I've written about it in the book. And my greatest hope that is by the time my book comes out, it's dated. Yeah, already because <laughs> it's gone. Fingers crossed, Matt. Fingers yeah. crossed. And that's just one area. And I, I, I really, I look forward to that. Yeah. Um. 
just moving on with you, sort of, sort of later on in your career after Chelsea were relegated, you you moved up to to Merseyside and moved to to Everton in in, in eighty eight, and then when Howard Kendall came back as manager in the in the very early nineties, there was some disagreements that you had about kind of uh, the culture around the club and and how footballers should behave. How did that sort of difficult relationship that 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 that's how it started? How did that affect your relationship with? other players and with the club and, and what sort of position did you find yourself in? It's like that. I mean, again, if you've studied sociology, psychology or anything like that, group thinking, um, you understand that all groups are different. And there was certainly a, a group dynamic problem within Everton in the time I was there. Even when I went there, when Colin Harvey was a manager, who I, I adored and still do. Um, but there was a, there were two different you know, cliques within the, te- the team. Uh, probably more than that. But... And it was stopping them maximizing their potential, I felt. Now, that these are, you know, would love, love to give you a one-line reason for it, but there was lots of reasons for it. Um, and it, it really was holding the team back. So when Howard came in, he brought back an, an, an older culture, which was, you know, based around alcohol and, you know, that sort of stuff. And I thought that was past its time. I, and I had no interest in it at all. And didn't want to be spending my whole time out drinking all the time with a bunch of guys, you know, and that sort of that sort of life. Although it was bonding and it helped many teams in the past, I just thought that that drawn. You know, Howard probably you didn't rate me as a player at the time. I, I mean, poor Howard's gone. I, I'm saddened for him. He was a, an Everton legend, but I didn't rate him particularly highly either when he was at the club. But you're allowed to have a difference of opinion. We got on brilliant when I left, by the way. That's the weird thing. We got on really well when I left because it wasn't the stress of that job thing in the midst of it. But, you know, I didn't, he didn't rate me, I didn't particularly rate what he, the way he was running the club. So, you know, it was never going to work. And one of the things, me, I'm quite mild-mannered, but when I think I see something that I don't think is correct morally within a, a group, I just can't stop myself saying it. I just see it. But you can tell where my stances and racism, etc. So I just see it. That doesn't go down well in a dressing room. You're saying it to the manager, so um, that that caused a number of problems because I, I just I thought something was wrong. I can I just say it out loud? And that 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 certainly created a a problem within the dynamic with a number of us between him and certainly myself and a couple of others. Did that ever um, did that ever kind of the way that you were make you ever feel alienated from other players? E, that's a great question. Um, I wouldn't feel alienated because to be alienated, you'd want to be part of the group. You know, you need you want to be involved and invested in the social and personal lives of the group. But if that was secondary, I liked being part of the group. It was great. It was good fun of training. And if you had the odd night out, you know, and go for a restaurant, it's fine. That's good. Enjoy your company. I enjoy lots of different types of people's company. But if you're alienated from a certain part of a group of a group of people who are doing something you don't like doing, well, you're not alienated because you don't want to be there. So um, I felt apart, yes. But then I felt apart for most of my career. I was very much an outsider within it because of my background, because the way I come into the game, because of my education differences, my interest differences. So I was alien. So was it alienated? Possibly. Did that bother me? No. <laughs> Not at all. And I know it's unusual. And I do know, and I do understand it's unusual. People 
within large sections of parts of society want to be accepted, etc. It's just not something I ever ever massively craved out with the people that mean something to me, to my close friends, my family. You know, alienated by them would be terribly stressful, I would imagine. Um, I've fortunately never been alienated by any of them, but uh, within that group, alienated, yes. Did it worry me? Did it affect me? Did it upset me? I'm afraid not. Do you think it is difficult for people who are not of a certain mould to fit in in that football environment? I mean, we had your... Uh, former teammate Neville Southall on uh, a little while ago. Oh, and alienated when you I, exactly. And, and 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 when we were doing the kind of uh when we we're doing the research for these questions um for this episode, Pat, we we Neville was the the person that we and he was very similar in that he didn't quite fit the mold of your sort of Absolutely. you know atypical footballer and and he was another one he was you know teetotal and, and all the rest of it. So do, do you think it's difficult for you know for yourself, you were obviously had enough self confidence and and self esteem that you weren't seeking the approval of others. But given that a lot of people may not be, you know, in that same position, do you think for people who are of a different mindset, of a different personality, it can be a difficult environment? Well, that's what we started talking about half an hour ago. People would come and talk to me. The people who are suffering from precisely those problems would come and talk to me, try to understand why. In a wide, wide range. And of course, I'm not at liberty to see who they are. But yeah, and they suffered. I mean, I had one guy, and I, I promise you, he's a household name. Absolute household. I say his name, and he came to me, and he just said, I'm really suffering. I can't talk to anyone. Everyone thinks I'm this happy-go-lucky, chummy guy, but someone's got it in for me, and I can't cope, and I'm struggling, and it's mentally really difficult for me. And he couldn't say it in front of anyone, but he's... he's Sat down and spoke. Now, I, mean, I didn't know this guy particularly well. He sought me out to talk to. And he was, I thought, a very confident guy. I mentioned the fact that Graham so really struggled with that. Graham's a clever guy, but he struggled with the fact that he was alienated by so many of them and was taking the abuse from teammates as well. So, yeah, it doesn't make you better or worse that you cannot, can't cope with it. It's, it's, not a, it's not a competition. But, yeah, I... There are certain types of people where I would underline, if you go to the extreme version of it, many of them failed in the game because of that specific problem. Absolutely, 100%. Many of them were good enough, were capable, and with the right support with the group around them and the acceptance, they would have made careers, but didn't because they couldn't cope with that. And because it was such a harsh environment and the, 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 the body humour, the... The winding up, the teasing, piss taking, if you want to call it that. Yeah, it destroyed them and they couldn't cope. And there was honestly as many failed with that as I would imagine almost than any other cause because that was part of the culture. Um, and that's a real incredible sadness. And I spent all my time, I'm kind of known for every single club I went to, and not just club, everywhere I go in life. My wife laughs at me. She says, oh, you just pick up waifs and strays, don't you? <laughs> no, I don't pick up waifs and strays. I'm interested in unusual people, people who have got a different outlook. Who, And I always used to say to the, the players, they always used to say, yeah, the nickname I had at Chelsea, they called me weirdo. Now, I took that as a compliment. <laughs> and, and I say to them, but what you don't get is I'm the normal one. 
you're all the weirdos. <laughs> and, they, and they were like, what? You're supposed to back off at this point. And I'm going, no, no, no. You don't get it. I'm right. You're all wrong. <laughs> Just to wind them up back. But that was the thing. If you are, like I'm guessing, about a big percentage of people, if you want to fit in, if you want to be part of the culture, if you want to be part of the group and the gang, and also it helps, you know, it helps in business and it helps in various places if you are part of that grouping. If you're not being allowed it for any reason at all, it, it is, it's dreadful, it's awful. It makes, it's, people suffer from it. And I could spend the next two hours telling you stories of guys that I watched suffer. There was one particular guy and he was a, uh, he came out of the club and he, honestly, God, this guy looked like David Bowie, only taller and better looking. But he spoke, he spoke like a hooray Henry. Eh, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, come on, leave it off, mate. I mean, you, you got to drop it a wee bit, mate. <laughs> Just a couple, couple more guttural sort of sounds, please. And uh, I suspect the reason why he didn't make it was the abuse he took. Because within that, that life at the time, that wasn't, I was just constant abuse. And uh, I think it destroyed him a wee bit. And within that culture, it, it turned out when I only have a very successful life doing something, I think it was modeling and stuff like that. He done really well. But, you know, yes, absolutely. Some people can't live within those, that environment. It, I do think it's much easier now for the vast majority because of society's moved on, because it has to be said, a lot of the foreign players come in with, different attitudes mm. and opened eyes and widened eyes. And also I would hope a little bit of it is the educational players um, from a variety of sources, but from within the clubs and the educational schemes that were put, all young players are put through via the PFA and the clubs. Um, I think that's helped to well, widen horizons. Do you think then that that was a, and I suppose it probably still applies today, do you think that's a masculinity issue then? That kind of... Yeah. The, the 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 piss taking and the and and the you know the what what could be conceived as bullying as well at, at, at certain extremes. Oh, yeah, yeah bullying is the right word. Absolutely, don't mess about with that. It was bullying, and the masculinity thing was definitely part of it. And I suspect it's still there to some degree. But when faced up with, let me tell you a story. The one player I know, and only one, but there was more. But only one that I found out. Of, I played with my career, and I found out about five years ago that it turns out he was gay. And there was three of us found out at the same time. This guy came and said, you know, so-and-so is uh, he's gay and he's out with his friends now. And for those players of my year, one of them said, oh, really? Oh, all right. Now that you think about it, he lived with his mum, didn't he, up to his 30s, didn't he? And the other one, next one went, yeah, it's a shame he couldn't have told us about it when we'd have taking the mech a bit, we'd, we'd have been cool about it. We'd have been fine. And the third one went, yeah, he did dress better than us, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the level of those guys from that era. You know, and in the end, see if you're good enough. If, you know, Ronaldo or Messi or anybody comes out and says, oh, by the way, I'm gay, do you think they're going to be turned on? No chance. They're, mm -hmm. going to be, they're part of the team. We want you. And, you know, you want to be part of it. So uh, certainly the machismo culture had an effect. And the fact that, you know, there was a kind of butch anti-gay thing sort of going on with some of them, 
but I managed to be deliberately winding up a fet in front of them quite a lot of the time. And I was a big fan of ballet. And I'd talk about going to the ballet the night before. They would try and wind me up, and I'd just go, oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and they gave up very quickly, very quickly indeed. So I think that's very much less than being out and being gay in that grouping. But that machismo culture has got a limitation. You'll tend to find when you stand up to bullies, they do back down very quickly. Mm. Yeah, it's quite interesting, Pat. When we spoke with Neville Southall, we asked him a similar question and what his reaction would have been. And he said, we would have took the piss out of him and then we would have protected him, which yeah. was quite an interesting thing to say. It's kind of like, we can take the piss out of you, but no one else can, almost, approach that teammates have. Um it, it, it's strange, really. The, the cases that you have of people coming out as gay tend to do it once they retire, so I suppose it's all hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Um, but the this, this shame in it really is that it's only ever one person who lets the team down, so the reaction of 19 players could be fantastic, and it only takes one player to take offence to it, and all of a sudden the papers are on it. So it just, I suppose, isn't the right environment for for people to be sort of helpful towards those situations and unfortunately football just always wants to grab the headlines which i suppose is part of the problem you have to remember ryan that you know i when the the, the first black players were coming through when paul mm. carnival i remember him getting racial abuse from one of the players at chelsea well i turned on that player a couple of others kind of said our pipe down came but i really wouldn't accept it and wouldn't have it but paul just stuck it out and said no and you know as time has gone by that's unthinkable now it's just unthinkable if you say it now you will get hammered culture moved culture changed because we educated because we stood up um and you can you imagine a player in a dressing room turning around to his mate beside him if he was black and saying something about you know racist to him it's like unthinkable right so it may take a while but the same would happen in any situation, and it would same would happen with a gay player. Neville's right; he's hundred percent right. Do you know the worst thing would be not to take the piss at the start? That would yeah. be the worst thing. That really wouldn't work because that would not allow now the, to to our level. You know, not not vicious and constant and hurtful, but there's got to be a bit of a wind up because everybody's wound up about everything. That's the culture. And I was wound up having a big nose. Um, about being small, about being Scottish, about being, you, know, you name it, anything. They could, that was just guys wind each other up. And if you don't get wound up with something, I can remember a player, it was a terrible, there was a story about him and about his wife in the papers. And he came in in the Monday morning and nobody said anything. And I thought, oh my God, that's the worst. Because it's there and it's hanging and it will hang unless you lance it. And uh, it, it took a long time. And the person, I'm not telling you the person because it gives away a wee bit of the story, but the person who, who actually finally lanced it, done it brilliantly and brought it up and it just released it. Because the embarrassment was there anyway. Well, that guy, what he'd gone through. So get it out there, get it in the open, have a wind up. See you the next day, gone, ignored, forgotten. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a healthy way of looking at it, I think, Pat. And it seems that um, if you don't give them the reaction that they're after, then they'll just stop after a while. Because okay. after all, that's all they're after, isn't it? A reaction. Um, yeah, it's, but if you've got, it's what Neville said. 
I mean, I think it's a brilliant quote. It's really the perfect quote. We would absolutely be behind the player and we'd give him all sorts of cover and we would be standing beside the player. That's what we did. And it was I've seen it so many times in so many different situations with footballs. But all you say the wind-ups and the negatives and you know the macho culture and all that, yeah, it's all there and it's got a toxic side to it. When push comes to shove, in the end, they stick by their colleagues. They do. They really do. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And and then move, moving on from your time at Everton, then uh, Tram, you were fortunately enough to sign you at the peak of your powers, um, and that just seemed like the player you were and the manager Johnny King was an absolute match made in heaven in terms of styles, and he wanted to get the ball down, play attacking football. I read earlier, is this true that you actually turned down Galatasaray to sign for Tramula? Yeah, um, so I got to Tramula for a couple of months on loan because I wanted to get back in the Scotland squad for the Euros, which I did manage to do. Um, and then, obviously, I was leaving Everton in the summer. Gala had come in to talk to me. I'd played against them and scored a couple of goals against them. And I went over there uh, to Istanbul with uh, Annabelle, my wife, and my son, Simon, who was two or three at the time. And... What they were offering was fantastic, massive club, money was great, all that sort of stuff. Um, and we came back and there was a variety of, it came down to a choice between uh, Gala and Tranmere. And there was a variety of reasons. You had to take a lot of things, you know, on board. Family, what was important for family. Um, but it came down to why was I doing it? Why do I play football? I played it because I loved doing it. I'd been two months at Tranmere. I loved every second of it. Brilliant bunch of guys. Seriously talented bunch of players. Shocked me how talented they were. They were much better than I thought they were going to be. They were real top players there. And, and the fact that most of the youngsters were only played in the Premier League anyway, kind of bore that out in the end. Um, but my wife just said to me, why are you doing it? Well, if you're thinking of Gala, why are you doing it? You know, you're doing it for the money. You're doing it. You, you won't do it because you love football. It wasn't even a question after that. I went to see Kingy, and Kingy just said, Look, this is what we want to do. This is how we're going to play. This is how. This is what freedom I want to give you. And he, how he knew, like, you could almost have read my mind. And that's just what I wanted to hear. I think at one point he says, you know what, if we win one nil, it's good. But if we win 5-4, it's better. Thought, <laughs> this is a man after my own heart. He <laughs> just and I just loved it. And because it was, I'd played that wee period of time, you had Aldo there, Johnny Morris was up front as well, beside us, we had creative players in midfield, the, the full-backs were just always wanted to attack. There was great characters like Stevie Mungo there, and I just thought, it's actually more fun than anywhere I've ever been. <laughs> and it just felt more real. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to say. Sometimes when you go to the very elite level it is a bit rarefied and it is a bit like crufts you know you get the kind of thoroughbreds up there i kind of liked being with the mongrels yeah <laughs> no, that makes sense. and i that was me and i just felt so at home but that time i was a different personality because i was an old slightly older person and i right at the peak of my career but um career was a word that meant nothing to me I was just enjoying kicking a ball and I knew that I would go and play for a team that were going to let me kick the ball the way I wanted to. And it was joyous. It was lovely. And I've, honestly, I've, I've talked about that, that book I've written. 
the book finishes the day I signed for Tranmere. If there's ever a part two, which I dearly hope there will be, well, I mean, I've written a part two already, but it's whether I'll ever see the light of day. Um, if there is a part two, the second part is much, much, much more fun. It's great. <laughs> and the, uh, the stuff that I've done afterwards, the madness of that stuff was just a joy. Stories like Tranmere are, are more fun than all the other stories put together. They really are. And, it, and I, honestly, I could speak all, all day and all night. I sometimes get asked to come down and do you know, after dinner stuff down at the Tranmere and fan supporters clubs or, you know, for various things. Honestly, you need to shut me up. You, you, you've got to need to shut me up after an hour because so much <laughs> stuff there. So it was a, a really happy time in my career to go there. And uh, it sounds like a tough decision. In fact, actually, it doesn't. From the outside, it sounds like a stupid decision. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it was absolutely logical and sensible. And you touched on there the, the win 5-4 approach Tram you had. Do you think ultimately that might have been what cost them a place in the Premier League? The inability to maybe switch up play and shut up shop and see games out? Uh, no, I think that no, it was just money. It was just money. Um, I think if, if, if we would have had more backup, we, we really were quite light, you know, when we lost two or three players, Baldo gets injured or, you know, if one or two players get injured or whatever, the next group beneath it, we didn't have that depth. Um, and there was one moment, I had one big moment for me that kind of really hurt us when we signed Tam Coyne and we had Aldo, Tommy Coyne. They were just stunning together. They were as good a partnership as sent forward. And I'd seen it in pre-season and I'd watched it in training and I just thought, oh my God. So you get them two internationals, you get me on one side, you get Mogsy on the other side, you've got really good creation from behind it. We've got fullbacks that are just top class. And I think this is it. And we, the backup we had up front was Chrissy Malkin and that. I'm just thinking, this can get us here. We've now got enough. We can, we can deal with losing just about anyone now. And then there was a terrible sad thing. Tom lost his wife and had to go back up to Scotland. And we didn't really have the backup to do that anywhere else, you know, in the in the in the squad. And in the end, you look back to important games. Um, that that's kind of where we slipped up. You know, we we had to go keep on going back to the same players, even when we were knackered. We couldn't rest anybody. And maybe that, as much as anything else, was the problem. It was finance. Yeah, of course, and that. Obviously, the dynamic changed at one point when Peter Johnson, I think, ended up getting involved in Everton as well. Um, so it was obviously swayed and what was happening there. But I believe during your career, you may have turned down. Did you move to Celtic while still at Tramia? Well, lots of things went weird there. But I, was, I don't know if you know, but I was offered. They asked me if I wanted to be manager when, was, uh, when King was leaving. And, uh, said, and I said, I'm not addressing me manager. He said, we're thinking of Aldo. And I went, well, you think of who you like, but I'm not ready for that. I don't, to be honest, I never want to be a manager. Not, it's not something that would turn me on, really. And we went, oh, that's nice. It was nice to let me ask. Um, but there was weird things, you know, happened. And we, there was once, and I can, if you're a Tranmere fan, you'll understand the importance of this. In my second season, uh, I got a phone call, and it was uh, a guy from, uh, I hate to say this to you, but Bolton Wanderers. <laughs> <laughs> Bolton wanted to buy me. And uh, they'd gone up 
to the top division. And we didn't have a good relationship with Bolton, did we? No. We, we were our arch rivals. But the guy who was got in touch with me had said, um, you're going to the Premier League. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I'll make a load more money. Will it be happier? Do I like their style better than Tranmere style? And then there was this kind of whole Bolton Tranmere thing as well. Anyway, I'm back to my wife and I talked to her about it. And we just thought, nah, we're not going to bother. We're just happy here. So it was about a few days later, Johnny King said, come into my office and said, look, there's been a bid for you, mate. Um, just want to let you know, promise we'd let you know a big team come in for you. And I went, before you say anything, John, not interested. Don't, I, I love it here at Tranmere. Really happy. I'm enjoying my football and I want to get us to the Premier League. And he said, Oh, that's great. Thanks. And as I walked out the door, he said, Don't you want to know who it was? And I went, Oh, no, who was it? He said, Celtic. What? <laughs> 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 See all that stuff I was saying, all that shit I was talking about. <laughs> you probably didn't feel you could turn around at that point and say, Actually, I've had a lot to think of it from getting up from the seat to the door. And, um... <laughs> it was a weird moment, but ugh, no, if it's not for you, it won't go by you. So that was what happened in the end. But, you know, we had a nice time there. We had a happy time there. And with a young family, and, you know, and my daughter was born as well. And, you know, it was just, we were really happy. We were living in Chester at the time. So we got, you know, everyone has difficulties in life, you know, and, you know, wellnesses with parents and things like that. But, Oh, I'm getting a shout, it's tea time for me, by the way. <laughs> um, but, you know, we they're just glorious, happy times and happy memories. And I wouldn't have changed them for anything. But did you want us to reconvene after you've eaten, or what would you rather How, how much more would you need of interest? Um, there was sort of just a few little parts around the PFA in Scotland. Um, and a bit of... I'll go back up. I'll reheat it when I go back upstairs. Are you sure? Because... Yeah, go for it. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, so following on from it, uh, it's not so much following on it, it sort of ran, ran parallel with your career, but um, obviously you played for Scotland, uh, represented your country, I think, 28 times. Huge personalities in the squad over the 10 years, and obviously the manager, Jock Steen. Very famous story we read about how you were introduced while playing for the under-21s with Spain. How much anxiety did you have going into that environment or did you have the same sort of relaxed nature in your football career? No, I just, funny enough, I'm not an arrogant person. I'm not, um, don't think I'm great. But stick me on a football field with a ball and I think I can do anyone. Just the way you've got to be. Um, and, you know, take me off the field and I think, do I really feel that way? Put him back on the field and he'll feel it again. So, in that situation, was I was playing for Scotland against Spain under 21s. The manager was under Oxford, but the, f- the national team coach was Steen. And uh, Steen came in at half time and absolutely hammered me, told me how terrible I was. And which he was a godlike figure in Scotland, and certainly as a Celtic sport, as a kid, hadn't been the Celtic manager in times gone by. And uh, I went out for the second half and I could have crumbled, but I didn't. And I worked my socks off and I'd done everything. And, the end of the game, I just thought, I'll show that. Well, I'll not swear, but I'll show him. And I was so angry, but I came off the pitch. And as I walked off and went on the bus, he walked up the bus and he sort of ruffled my hair and said, great wee man, from start to finish. And what he'd been doing is testing me to find if I had the gumption or the ball to stand up to him. Because um, I, from the outside, looked like this wee fae, indie, you know, soft wee guy. And he didn't want to put me in the first team if I was going to, you know, weaken um, when it comes to the pressure. So he tested me. 
and I did nose test and well I passed obviously um, but it was an extraordinary thing and he was a great psychologist you know, a brilliant psychologist um, and it was an extreme way of doing it but he found the answer that he needed to find um, and that was just the way as sometimes in the extreme sports you need to find out the mental strength of certain people in certain things because you can go to a world cup and then find out the guy that you need to trust is cowering in a corner and you can't and he can't help you so that's what you've tried to do and and you've mentioned throughout this interview that while you love playing football you, you had other loves and other interests that that almost if you, you didn't carry on with football at a younger age it wouldn't have bothered you so much because you like art and literature but when you come off the pitch and someone like jock ruffles your head and hair and says that was unbelievable that must be a feeling like no other feeling uh i don't know really I, oh really i'll give you some odd answers i know but i have to be honest with you um it's nice if someone says you did well but if a guy walks up to me in the street and says by the way i love you how you did that there that's the same thing it's the same thing um not actually oh. um what was your family's reaction i'll give you another one i'll give you another one I remember John Peel. John Peel came to the FA Cup final, Chelsea, Everton, Liverpool. We could beat. He was supporting Liverpool, but I got him tickets and he was a friend. And afterwards he said, I didn't know how good you were. Now that meant something. Yeah. John meant something to me. John Peel meant something to me. Um, in that way, but just as someone I admired in a, in a different sphere. Um, but generally, uh, I don't know if it had any great effects on me, you know, having my ego massaged. And did, um, what was your family's reaction? Sorry, sorry? What was your family's reaction when you, you pulled on the, the jersey for Scotland? And my dad was very proud. Um, he probably slightly have preferred if I played for Ireland, Republic of Ireland, you know, and I could have, that was my choice. Um, yeah. I have got an Irish passport. Um, but, uh, you know, but he was very proud. He was really happy. And we're kind of very much about kind of calm cool family you know really happy i maybe found out later in life when we talked when he was older maybe you know i've lost him now i died five or six years ago and um, the last 10 years we we talked more we sat down and moving through it and one of the things about football is you never look back when you're playing you never ever look back it's dangerous that's what's always drawn into you and you feel as if you're a bit of a loser if you're looking back because the next game's more important and when you do that for 20 years, you, you, you don't know anything else. So I never looked back. And it took a couple of decades after I stopped, a decade or so after I stopped playing to look back and think, all oh, right, that was interesting. And really think about it because I was now on the next thing. That's gone, now on the next thing. But uh, maybe writing this book as well is, may help me look back a wee bit and think about it in some slightly different ways. Uh, but at least I had the chance to talk to my dad and it was more not that not that he thought i was playing great but he told me the happiness that he got from it that that beat everything he got happiness of watching me enjoying me playing well and you know that if we did something that he thought was really special and we thought he would say before i'm say that was really good liked what you done there but not effervescent effusive ways praise all the time um, but when we were late and we could talk about it, you know, when he was in his 70s and his early 80s, um, it was good then because I was able to then realise 
it was a major part of his life that he never missed a game, hardly. In my 800-odd games of professional football, he missed, could have missed maybe 10% of them. You know, so it was a big part of his life and he loved it. And I'm happy I gave him that happiness. And that's, that's better than anything. Yeah, of course. That, that's really nice to hear. It really is. And it's it's often said with, with footballers at the, the very, very high level that they have to be so one-track-minded in, in the mentality. You look at Cristiano Ronaldo and you can just see how much it means to him. And it's probably a detriment to other areas of his life, but equally... He wants to be the best in the world and that's what makes him most happy. You had a wonderful career. Do you think your your attitude towards it, which meant you had a very healthy life off the pitch, stopped you ever reaching higher levels? Or do you think you were the best you could have been and maintained a healthy balance? Um, no, you could be right. You could be right. There's a possibility if I'd have been more uh, vicious about it. Um, one track, single-minded, didn't care about anyone else. Cared about myself, not the team. Uh, pushed myself. I mean, I never had an agent pushing me my entire life. Never had an agent, and uh, I wasn't aiming to be the best of the best of the. I could just trying to be the best I could be. I personally don't think it's the case, but it might be. I personally think, with my type of personality, the fact that I was able to be relaxed made me better, um, and made me as creative as I could be, whereas if, and I was very focused when I was playing, very focused when I was training. Um, the other side of it where you elbow everybody out of the way to get to the front of everything and don't care about anyone else, maybe I could have got a wee bit further, possibly, I don't know. But I wouldn't want to have and be that yeah. type of person. <laughs> I wouldn't have no, that, that, and that's the angle I was kind of coming from, that you, you do have to sacrifice being a nice person, not completely but you've got to have tendencies which are maybe as we touched on quite arrogant quite um selfish because you can't really be both <laughs> it no, seems it's hard you do. yeah you do, do you right. and i think that happens in lots of areas of life there's lots of things i could have done i've had lots of offers to do various jobs um and i just thought no actually my personal is wrong for that um and i will not do that nasty stuff that i need to do so I'll not do that job. Um, I had one job as chief executive and player at Motherwell. And I just said, well, I'll try it, but I'll try and do it my way. Um, and it's kind of doable, but it's not a thing that I loved getting any real joy of. I learned, I like learning, but there's no real joy in it. And everyone's different. You know, it's, I think given, you know, you know that happiness and different ways is just as important as getting medals and getting cups and trophies and that. It's great to win and I'm very competitive when I play football. It's probably the only part of my life I have any competitive instinct at all. Um, but I still wouldn't like to be that other person. You, you moved over to, to Motherwell and you actually had a role there as chief executive at the same time as playing, which, which seems quite unique. I'm not sure I've heard of that before. How did that come about? Well, it's weird because I'd left Tranmere and I had a year at Kilmarnock, which I sometimes argue is the most the happiest year of my career. Um, a year there, the guys that I played with there were just brilliant fun. We had a good team. We qualified for Europe. Um, it was just, I had a year there. It was great. And uh, just, I wanted to go back to Scotland and play in Scotland before I retired. And then um, 
then the end of the season, they, they kind of done something they shouldn't have done with me. They kind of went back in a promise, and I just it wasn't even money or anything. It was just the morality of it, and I just said, "Well, that's enough." Uh, and at that time, uh, a guy that I vaguely knew uh, was buying Motherwell. He told me years before he was going to buy a club, and he eventually went, bought the club, and then said, "Phone me up and just said, could you come and run this for me?'" And I went, uh, "Well." Probably no, but I'll come and chat, you know. But you know, I don't know if I'm interested in it really. He said, Well, you could play as well. Well, well, that sounds vaguely interesting. So I went along and I said, I ended up saying, right, okay, I'll come and sign for the team um, and I'll have a look over and I'll do a a check of the structure of the club and what needs done, and I'll give you some plans of you know, an A, B, and C, you know, this will cost X, this will cost Y, this will cost Z. Um so I went over and done that. And there's a long involved story of how I got there, which I won't bore you with. But and I wasn't mad, I wasn't that interested in doing a, a chief executive role. Um, but because I'd the background in business to the degree that I'd been doing, I'd done the PFA stuff, I'd been just about in every single committee in England for via the PFA. So I kind of knew the background of lots of areas of football. Um, I didn't have massive interest to become a manager. He wanted me to be the manager, I said no. Um, but yes, it's unusual because when I went in and had a look at it, I, I explained to him how you could structure it three different ways, and he decided to go for the most expensive one, which I was—I tried to talk him out of. To be fair, that's <laughs> something stupid. Yeah. Um, but then I explained to him, "Now I'm going to choose a man." The manager walked because I found one or two things that <laughs> well, he wasn't going to hang about, and he left. Just legged it. Um, so I had to find a new manager, and I had, uh, you know, I just really, I had three really interesting people in the dressing room at various times who went on to become Premier League managers, three of them, which is amazing for a wee dressing room in Motherwell. <laughs> I had to choose, and they're all players, they're all younger than me, um, but I chose one of them. Um, and what people couldn't understand is, in a normal structure, you have uh, staff, guys and players, you have management, stroke middle management, as in the coach, the manager, whatever. And then you have, you know, the upper echelons, the club chief executive and chairman. But I'm the two different echelons. I'm the worker, but I'm also the chief exec. So how does that work? (laughs) And for me, it just makes perfect sense. But but some things make perfect sense to me because of the type of person I am. And it's to explain to people, well, Manager, I'll choose the manager, um, bring him in, and then he manages. And if he drops me, he drops me. I can't argue because I made him the manager. I have to trust his judgment. He picks the team. He does all that. He chooses the players, everything. Um, I chose one player. I, I got one player from him. I said, look, this is one player. I'm just going to give you him. And I'm not, I'm not in a fear again. If you want my advice, ask. Otherwise, I'm not interested. I'll just wait for you. And he rarely did ask for advice. He just did his own thing. And that's fair enough. Billy Davis, but um, the player you will know that I brought in was Jed Brannan. And oh, Jed, yeah. yeah, and Jed became the captain of the club and played every game when he was there and he was brilliant for us. Um, but the other side of it is, of course, I'm chief exec, so the manager answers to me and all other and lots of other areas. And the media found it difficult to comprehend, you know, so you can tell him you can play. I said, no, I can't. He's a manager. He's a coach. He decides who plays. 
what if you think you should be playing? I don't care. I've told him, I've delineated that and decided that it's his job to do that so he can do it. I'm the only player that can't go and knock his door and say I should be playing. And I'm going to be very open with it all. So it was a very unusual thing. The guy who owned bought the club didn't know a lot, anything really about football. Um, but he did know quite a bit about business. And uh, we kind of ran it that way for four years um, and before he pulled the plug for the money. Um, so it was interesting to do it. Um, I played for two of the years and then I just did the executive role for two years. And I was probably three months away from uh, managing my exit strategy. I'd got the new uh, manager, uh, Eric Black, and Terry Butcher was assistant. I'd got the whole staff and team and my replacement and my job all sorted. And then the, the, the owner decided to put it in the administration, even though I'd run it under budget. Um, so it's a very, very strange thing. Um, so I said, look, if you put it in administration, I'm leaving because I'm not dealing with that rubbish because I don't think it should be because I've got a buyer for you here. Um, but, you know, we disagreed on that. Uh, and I left over that even though I could have stayed. Um, and Eric did the same, Eric Black did the same. But it was it was interesting. I learned a huge amount. I mean, all the sides of the game that I didn't have knowledge of, I learned every bit of it. So working with agents, as in dealing with them, working with all the structures of how to run things, and learned all that. So from that point of view, it was interesting to learn it all. But I had no intention to carry on doing it after that. You know, if a bigger club were to come in and go, one club did come in and ask me to go and run them. And I just said, no, it's not really what I wanted to do. But I did learn a lot um, in that short period of time. But I have to admit, I didn't. It's not something I greatly enjoyed. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, if it was something you enjoyed and if there were other opportunities. But it seems like it was one of those things that was just one part of your life and you, you moved on from it and no, you can no. reflect on it, but not something you want to do in the future. Yeah. But the other thing about it is, I mean, I, I, I did want to see other things. And I did want, and I quite, by that point, I was working for Radio 5 Live and also was uh, main pundit for Channel 5 TV uh, football. So I had other jobs I was doing. I really wanted to get into my writing as well. Um, so journalism stuff that I wanted to write specific way um, and then that didn't happen that did happen I actually had columns in lots and lots of newspapers and for years and years and years um, and so one thing you talk all the different things I did you know I was a columnist for you know the Herald the you know the the Times the Sunday Times the Guardian you know I've done, I've done, I've done masses of different stuff and long three four and five year long columns but I do it every week. So it was another job that I wanted to check that one as well. So it was just a case of looking around, seeing what I liked and wanted to do, but still had to earn money because I've you know, got family and all the rest of it. So that was kind of important, but I still wanted to keep a core of loving what I was doing. And to be fair, that job I didn't love. Well, what I must say, Pat, is it, it seems that you, you do pursue the things you want to do, which I, I think is, is really positive. And, a lot of the footballers we've spoken to who have retired either recently or a long time ago say that that was the biggest struggle for them, finding something post-football that they wanted to do or they were interested in. You had a time at the PFA, which you've touched on. What I know it's a long time ago and 
the administration when you were there is completely different to the one that's there now. But what what did the PFA do well and what could they have maybe done better to support players transitioning into retirement? Because yeah, there probably no, isn't enough roles as they're out there for them all to be managers and all to be coaches. Well, there isn't. And uh, even by the time I was there, that was one of our major uh, areas that we were trying to work in. To explain what the PFA does, it's a union that's incredibly powerful um, and also fairly wealthy for a long time because we managed to get a percentage of the television money. Now, in the olden days, that was nothing, but now that's a lot of money. And what the money was moved into was the accident emergency fund and the stuff for people who had um, got injuries and there was a benefit scheme which people had fallen in hard times but the education society was gigantic within it as well and the re-education part of the society as well and that's still huge so for players that come out of it uh, come out of football a they were they were always offered education during their careers and it was always there and always available and always free um well they were youths they were offered educational as well for the PFA and then by the clubs. Post your uh, career, uh, it's, it's there for the rest of your life. So if I went and go and educate myself something going to university, I'm just going to talk to the PFA. You know, it's there. So it's all yeah. there, but it's, but it's hard work. Now, not everybody is, you know, going to go and study astrophysics. However, you can do other courses, you know, and the PFA will help you do that. So. The help is there in a variety of areas. Now, I mentioned areas before that PFA linked up with Sporting Chance, did a lot of work, put a lot of money into you know, help with addiction and those sort of areas afterwards. Clark Carlyle, who you, I'm sure you know well, who had suicide attempts himself, was former chairman as well. So he was chairman as well, and he was pushing it as much as possible. Now, yes, you can do certain things better. And I, by the way, again, it's an hour to tell you what the PFA do. I mean, the, the pension's fantastic that was organised by them. Um, but if there's any errors and mistakes making made, trust me, you're going to miss, you're going to you're going to read about that in the newspapers. You're going to read about the 99 percent of all stuff, which is brilliant, and it is brilliant, really good the work they do. And the vast majority is purely to the aid of either players, sometimes clubs. And sometimes people outside the game as well. Um, so it's, it's been a magnificent organisation, but it's not stylish to say it because they've been so uh, demonised in the press. Um, but if you know what I know and the time and the effort and the money spent on helping people, and that's where all most of the time goes, you, you, would, you would applaud that organisation to the rafters. Now, are there areas where they could do things better? Yeah. Everything you ever did, you've probably got better wrong as you've done it. But as long as you then adapted and changed as you went on. I can remember early days, people coming to us, very early days, looking for money because they gambled it all away. Well, we learned quite quickly that the last thing you do to a gambler is give them some more money. <laughs> yeah. So, but you learn it quick. So you don't do it again. What you do is you do very solid things. I didn't do that, but you have to hear stories of that. So, you know, that. As an organisation, what are they not doing well now? Well, there's been lots of things that have been levelled at them, but they have put, you know, if they, let me give you an example. There's a lot of talk about head injuries and problems with that just now. At the moment, as I've gone to research it as much as I possibly can with um, the various dementia societies, etc., 
there is no clinical evidence to say there is an increased risk. None yet. None of those organizations will say there's a definitive scientific research that can say that is the case. But they are looking into it and the PFA is funding it. However, if you read what you read in the papers, the PFA are being the most vile, horrible people about it. They contact everyone they possibly can. Um, they won't get everything right. You'll do that and then people say you should be putting hundreds of thousands or millions into that. Fine. So what about the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that they did and made sure that every single player is tested for a sudden death syndrome with heart problem? What about all the money and research that they put into that and made sure that a number of, quite a lot of players were discovered to have that and their lives were saved? Should we, should we drop that now? Because we need to put it in another place where everyone else says it should go. Should you then drop the accident and emergency fund? Should you then drop the help with hip injuries and the people have got that are now in their 60s that can't afford it? Should you, and you start thinking, well, wait a minute. You, it's like government. There is only a set amount of funds. You may have a bit of wealth, and everyone will tell you how much Gordon earns every year. And that is a weakness of the union that Gordon's pay is always a stick that it's going to be beaten with. But if you look at all the areas that covered, it's still a small percentage of what the union spends. Um, so I'm, I'm still a champion of that union very strongly. They do not get everything right and they make mistakes. But I know the fabulous work and I know the amount of people they've helped and I know the amount of household names that they have helped in incredibly difficult times. And it will never get out because it's never spoken about. And that's the sadness of it. You think because you don't hear these things and it's a real sadness that all you hear is negativity and it's an amazing organization for what it has done and what it continues to do yeah no i, I could see that as you say it doesn't really make much of a headline to say pfa does good job at something really does it but the, when when they do something wrong everyone's quick to jump on it and that, that's probably a societal issue more than anything isn't it how we behave the biggest problem is gordon's uh, wages of the stick that the, that the union is beaten by. That's it. Um, Gordon and I actually disagreed over it. We had I was chairman. I was chief chair, chief. No, I was chairman. He was chief exec. So I had to do his contract when they come in. And when I came in, it was a new contract waiting for him to be signed. But I had to co-sign it. And I looked at him. And I went, no chance. I'm not signing that for you. I, I'm, I have this. That, that's not acceptable. And there was another couple of contracts that had been written up, and I said, who did these? And I felt that the way it's done before was wrong. It became two of my years at the PFA as chairman were legal arguments with, with Gordon over payment. But we're still great friends apart from all that, but that one area was we disagreed on. And, you know, whether it went, when I left, whether it went off the scale after that, I don't know why. But maybe I'll have, you know, it did for whatever reasons. Gordon has a brilliant argument, and it's a great argument he's got back. You look at his earnings and compare it to what he has earned the union, and it's a drop in the ocean. He is extraordinary what he got for the union. Absolutely extraordinary. Oh, that's good. And I suppose it's the type of insight that, as you say, people who pick up the paper or watch Sky Sports News and those type of things just wouldn't know. Um, and maybe you should say it should never really be brought into the conversation in the first place because it's not what it's there for. But um, what I wanted to ask about the PFA is obviously, as you know, this podcast is about mental health and football, mm -hmm. making 
and more comfortable and using football as that vehicle to start the conversation. I don't think the conversation and, and the stigma around mental health was probably quite the same in, in your years at the PFA compared to now, where it seems to be sort of a bit more emphasis on it, um, probably be fair to say. Yeah. Being involved in football from then till now, have you seen football move in a positive way? Um, in line with society, I would suggest. Yeah. Um, and that you tend to find that happens. Some things aren't done because, you know, the pastors are different countries who do things differently. That, um, and that is the case that we, let me give a good, great example. I can remember sitting at a union uh, meeting um, and we had all our management committee, like, you know, Brian McClare and other guys around. And there was like, 12 of us. And we had an hour that we had to spend a million quid in that hour. So we had an hour to spend a million quid. And you think, that sounds great, but we're desperate to spend it well and not rush it. If we couldn't spend it then and sign it off, it went to the taxman. But we wanted to put it into what was good areas to help. We, I, remember, I remember we finally got a number of different education programs that we were able to build with it, and that was great. And we got, we got, we got the ideas around the table and we got out and we got, we got it where it should be. And that's what we were looking at. Tell us what to do and we'll do it. There weren't people coming to tell us, by the way, there's a big mental health problem here. Mm. I was aware that some people were struggling and I talked to people, but until they approached, we couldn't, we didn't know that it was such a major problem for so many. And when people did come, they were immediately helped. And then as time went by, it, it realized it, not exactly, exactly you know, in pandemic proportions within the game. Well, yeah, you, you up your game and you, you try and do as much as you can for it. Because, you know, it, it's, it's, for a lot of people, it's incredibly stressful. It's all they want, it's all they aim for. It's back to what we said at the start. They judge themselves and gauge themselves by their work, as many people do. I didn't understand because I didn't, but they do. And if that work fails, the, the mental scarring is huge. Um, and I think the unions kind of figured that out. We had a big problem at the time where I knew at the time, I remember talking to Gordon really early days about this, saying that, see, when I talk to ex-footballers, the second piece of the conversation is usually, my ex-wife says, it was amazing how many just said, well, my ex-wife, what she did was, and I think everybody would divorce by, you know, five years after their career. And I said, we need to study that. We need to find out why, and the causes, the reasons, you know, because that is massive, because that's mental health of families and, and difficulties that they've got. Um, that was after the first part of the conversation when you meet another ex-player, which is not what you did, not the goals you scored, but what are your injuries? How are you suffering? And people don't think about it. You know, you talk to fans and read papers. Blows me up. They go, God, my knee's gone. Oh, my hip's gone. Oh, I need an operation for this. It's just constant. So it's huge sums of money have to be pushed into that and help has to be pushed into that. So mental health, not being exactly a Cinderella subject for us, but there were so many other things. And we were being told, they're going out of the game. They have nothing to do. Okay, we'll find something to do. We'll start up education, education programs. 
if you want to go to university, we'll pay for that. We'll put on different degrees ourselves. You're too, you're, you're, it's almost like a, a dam that's bursting and you're sticking your finger everywhere. But you're doing it for the right, you're putting these plasters, you think, to the right places. But as mental health has been cut, such an you know, overarching issue for a lot and such a serious one, you know, you go back to the guy's speed stuff and all the rest of it, you know, you then realise, oh my goodness, this has to be attacked. But in those days, the culture wasn't to speak. So how did you know? It was difficult to know. And, and if you're too busy putting out fires everywhere else, but when you're made aware of the fire, as long as you go and start putting that one out or doing your best to control it, that's all you can do. Yeah, you're completely right. And I think it does start with, with education as well. And I think there is an emphasis on improving the education around it because, as you say, you look at divorces and then you you, you think of the life of a footballer, which is often glamorised, but it could involve moving your family to eight different cities in, in a 10-year span. If you're a young footballer, it involves having quite a lot of money and a lot of time on your hands. So you can see why someone would go into gambling or get addicted to, to something else. So the, the lifestyle, I think I think we need to be, I think Gareth Southgate's done a really good job of that at England of saying, let, let the players look and appear to be human because they are. And we often forget that they're humans. Um, we just see them as footballers and we think they've got everything. But in fact, they go home and, and they hurt the same way we hurt and they have difficulties with the family like we do and, and all those things as well but I do think football is moving in the right direction and it can never happen quick enough but as long as it's happening then it's positive steps I suppose. I spent my whole life telling them hey I'm normal <laughs> I'm just a normal bloke I've told everybody I'm just a normal guy I don't want you to think I'm something extra special and stratospheric and, but there is that difficulty in the media that we have now and the mass media and the social media and the advertising that they try and project, they are a product. And if you project yourself as a product, you are no longer you. And that's a danger in that. There's an upside, you'll make lots of money. There's a downside. You are then a product. You'll be treated like a product. Yeah. You have to remember you, who you are, the base of it. This is the thing I, I do often go back to. It's who you are. Now you talk about the, the, the broken marriages thing. And lots of people say, yeah, the players are just going to get different women all over the place. The bigger pro I often thought the bigger problem was something much deeper than that. When you, when they got together, some of the players got together and they married these often very beautiful girls. And who did she marry? She married this fabulous villain, possibly, wealthy, possibly, well-known, famous, loved by everyone, footballer, stroke guy. So that's who she married. Two years after marriage, who's she married to now? Different yeah. guy. Now, that may be in his eyes or her eyes. That's no abuse of women. That's no abuse of men. But when you have a relationship with something, someone, if you gauge them by their job and not by something much more innate than that, trouble lies ahead when that job disappears. And I always thought, I, I knew that when I was 16. But it, people don't see it all the time. It's just, you know, you're impressed by celebrity, you're impressed by fame, you're impressed by everybody loving that person, you know, and it's all fake. <laughs> I knew that. Was yeah. But it's all just fakery. But we're led to believe it isn't. So that's the kind of thing that I always thought I'd love long-term psych studies to be done into that area of 
like, do you know depth about your partner, you know, or is it this fantastic, oh, you look great together, you feel great together, all that sort of thing? Or do you, has it really, is there a depth to it? I mean, almost every every girl, and I didn't go along with many girls before I got married, none of them knew I played football. I absolutely didn't know I played football. Yeah. That was like, you know, underline that. That was a very important thing that I, you know, or clearly didn't give a stuff, <laughs> no interest in football, because you didn't want to fall into that. And and I think that's an area, along with a, a whole bunch of other areas that study could have been done with. But as soon as you start scratching at this, those areas that I'm talking about, which can lead to problems and mental health problems, they're not simple, are they? They're very, they're very complex. They're very complex, and it rings true for for depression that we've seen as well in footballers of they've spent the majority of their life not being sort of I'll just use David Beckham as an example uh, being David Beckham the footballer so when you retire all of a sudden what am I you've lost your sense yeah. of identity and some people do struggle with that I think by speaking to you tonight part of huge strength of yours is to be able to to shrug off comments of people during your career and we spoke to Alex Hay you may have met he was a youngster at Tramia um, he played for the first team, but he said he had the ability to be a footballer, but not the mentality. So he couldn't go home and stop thinking about comments someone had made and training, or he, he worked too hard almost because he was a fan of the club. And I suppose there is probably an element of nature versus nature, isn't there? And some people are just born differently to others and can, can get on with it. Other people have had an upbringing that lends itself to that environment. You then went on to, to write a book called In My Head, Son. Um, I was actually with a psychologist how did that come about and, and what did you feel you learned in that process? Um, I didn't learn a great deal. <laughs> I just, well, I, that was the concept was originally to learn, but in actual fact, it's like just two different conversations. So um, I, it was my idea because I'd read a book um, by Professor Skinner and John Cleese many years ago called Life and How to Survive It. And it was about psychology. And it was pleased talking about dealing with the life that he'd had. And I said, well, how about football and how to survive it? I'll get a psychologist and I'll write my side and he'll write his side and we'll talk and we'll go through that. Um, and it was vaguely interesting, but in the end, I don't think he really went into a great deal of depth in me. What well, it turned out being more of just me saying what I kind of thought. Um, so I don't know if I learned a lot, I'll be honest with you. Uh, but it was good to get some ideas out there. Um, but in the end, it wasn't the book that I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be, uh, originally, I really did want it to be more of a medical book. Um, but it turned out to be more of, of a lighter entertainment thing. Um, so I made a promise to myself that the next one I do, I'm writing every single word. I'm telling nobody. And when it's finished, I'm going to hand it to a publisher and say, do you like that? So that's what I did <laughs> recently. <laughs> um, the psychology I was always interested in, in some parts of it. It's a real shame, though, because it was probably the, the unhappiest career, year of my career. And it's a shame that, because it comes up across, I've never, I've not read it for many years, but some of it I'm sure came across as, you know, it was tough times, it was hard, I was annoyed about things, I was upset that the manager wasn't giving it a chance and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's just normal human nature. Um, and it's not actually a good mirror 
to the person I was through the majority of my career. Um, but there are some, there are some hopefully some insights into it. Uh, but they weren't insights that I, write, I learned by writing the book. They were insights that I learned previously and then just wrote. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to bring Danny back in now, uh, Pat. I'm just going to finish up on the quick fire. Um, got about ten or twelve questions. Okay. Whatever. Light hearted, so don't have to much about your answers. <laughs> Can I just ask him um, one last thing just before we move on to onto that part? How did your friendship with with John Peel come about? Uh, it's a good question. Um, John was my hero as a kid. You know, when I was at, you know, I just started. I listened to Peely just before punk happened and around about punk and then after that and then basically he was my friend at night like a lot of people um, and my girlfriend at the time she her and I would listen to all this stuff and just music fanatics and still am um, and when I was coming down to London first to St. Chelsea he'd have said to me in that train who would you like to meet most in London I'd have said John Peel immediately um, and about two years into my career at Chelsea they said they'd started a newspaper the club and they asked me if I because they could see I was writing stuff. And this, because I was writing for NME under a pseudonym and stuff like that. <laughs> so I, they said, could you write a column in the newspaper? And I went, yeah, if you like. And they went, oh, great, great. And I said, but I'm not writing about football. I'm writing about music. And they went, oh, right, fine. Okay. So I wrote a music column for the news, Chelsea Football Club newspaper. And after a number of months, I thought, oh, here's an idea. Why don't I interview John Peel? because <laughs> he's a football fan he likes music it's a music column in a football film, newspaper so i wrote to john didn't tell him that i played for chelsea and i wrote him said i worked for a wee newspaper in uh west london and uh i'd like to interview for it and he wrote back a nice letter because that's what you had to do in this case, saying it was a bit busy and maybe another time you know so i did do for the only time my whole life i wrote another letter and said um, thanks for that, John. Um, it was just that um, my team that I play for, oh dear, how, how much of a clanger is that to drop? Uh, Chelsea are playing your team, Liverpool, in a few weeks' time, and I was hoping to do the interview before that. That's not a very subtle who, do you know who I am, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote, and I said, it'd be lovely if I could speak to you before then. So he got a letter and he phoned me immediately. And we met up, and honestly, it was hilarious within 10 minutes, just like mates, immediately. He would get the shock of his life when he started talking to me. And I was saying, oh, this session with the fall uh, last year was unbelievable when they played. And he was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and they started chatting and they realized I was like fanatical, a total fanatic of music that he loved. And then they realized very quickly that, wait, we've got a footballer who's into Joy Division and all that sort of stuff. And he was like, right, that's interesting. And John was stunningly shy. And that was the amazing thing about it. Wildly, he was, he was so shy to meet me. And of course, it should utterly have been the other way around. But we ended up going to gigs together and I'd come in and sitting on the show. Never ever said my name. I very rarely said my name in the show. And sometimes say, I've got the famous footballer internet, but never said it was me. And it was just that first meeting me interviewing him. And then after that, we just met up at gigs and then the friendship stayed forever. Oh, that's fantastic! I did the reason. The reason I ask is my um, my dad's a my dad's a massive uh, music fan. He's a big John Peel fan as well. And when uh, it we went, I went to uh, to Glastonbury in in two thousand and nine with him, and 
we obviously went to the the John Peel stage and stuff. And I didn't I didn't know John Peel was until I said, "Who's this? Why is the, Who's this fella who he's, he's named after?" So yeah, and I don't think he'd um, I don't think he'd have forgiven me if we'd uh, you know with you for a couple of hours and I'd not asked the question. Pat, so thanks yeah. for that. I appreciate well, the it. The lovely thing is in my book, there's a lot of good stories about John. So uh, that, that's one thing I was really happy to get out there about things that we did together and fun, jokey things and uh, good memories. So. That was a good thing. But yeah, he was a very important person in my life. Um, and uh, the stories after that, you know, when I was at Tranmere and afterwards are fabulous too. So one day they'll get aired. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was certainly a, a pleasure to be involved with. And, you know, another example of one of the brilliant things that has come out of us starting this podcast. And I hope you took something away from it as well. I think the pat attitude towards life and and towards himself is is really healthy and really refreshing and is something that a lot of us can can learn and take from so thank you for being with us i'm going to leave you now with with pat's quick fire which disclaimer does go on for about 19 minutes or so but is well worth a listen to you've been listening to man marking if you do want to get in touch with us you can email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter at marking underscore man We'll be back on Monday with our next episode, which is with former Premier League referee Bobby Madley. So we'll see you then. So there's a famous American stadium that no longer exists that's hosted Pope John Paul II, Guns N' Roses, Bruce Springsteen, Marilyn Manson, the Jackson Five, and what famous football moment? Oh, God. Famous, did you say station? Famous football moment. Marilyn Manson and Pope. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a stadium in America that no longer exists. It also, this moment we're talking about appeared in a Mike Myers movie, I believe. Oh, well, it should be. Um, I should know that because I've appeared in a Mike Myers movie. Um, is it the Mile High Stadium, Chicago? It is. That's correct. Your first international goal, I believe. Exactly, Mile High. And I was, <laughs> yes, that goal was actually in that Mike Myers movie, correct? <laughs> and if anyone who's out there listening has never watched So I Married an Axe Murderer watch it it's utterly brilliant and hilarious and the funniest scene in the entire film that goal being scored in the background is actually me <laughs> <laughs> um, second question then is is the Tramia side that you played in the best side to never play in the Premier League it's, a, it's probably the most entertaining Um and I think they, I can't think of another team that deserved it more than us in that period, because we did it on a shoestring apart from compared to everyone else. There's so many massive clubs that we were up against, and we played a, a style of football which was just just so cavalier and so much fun and so exciting. Um, and it's to, to be honest, the other thing, Tranmere deserved to get in the Premier League at that time. But the Premier League really needed Tranmere because I thought they, I didn't like the Premier League. <laughs> I thought it was rank. <laughs> it had gone, gone really down the road of power plays and physique. And there were some good players, very good players playing. But most of them were foreign players and were good. And there were very few teams that were playing a really interesting form of football. It had gone very, very dull uh, around the, just when the Premier League started. And it had all this kind of for someone who was waiting for 
the Barcelona moment to arrive, you know, when it finally came, when Xavi, Iniesta and the Silvas and Messi's and all that came and that style of football arrived. To sit and watch the Premier League at that time was torture. It was absolute torture. I, I, honestly, if it, the vast majority of games at that time, playing outside my back garden, I wouldn't have opened the curtains. I thought it was rotten. <laughs> <laughs> they could have done with Tranmere to liven it up a wee bit and make it look, you know, a, a much more open skill-based game. Do you think then that Swindon Town failed to pay the electric bill on purpose? God, the torture. It's funny when I look back at your career, your 850 games, and you think about the times that were really important. It's horrible because a lot of the bad ones jump out of your head. You know, the day I get my last game for Chelsea, we get relegated. So unfair, we were the better team. And the times were against Swindon, where we should have gone through, against Leicester when we should have gone through. I mean, it still hurts to this day that we played in the playoffs and each time we were the better team. Generally, we over the period we were the better team and it was torture. And I felt so sorry and our fans had waited all their lives for that moment and we just couldn't deliver it. So yeah, Swindon, they were one of the ones and uh, electricity bills or anything, I don't care. <laughs> it still hurts. That actually does still hurt. Um, who's your best friend in football? Um, well, I don't meet up with that many players these days. Um, when I meet them, I got in perfectly well with them. But I did meet with Brian McClare today. So <laughs> uh, Brian McClare, probably ex-Manchester United and Celtic. Him and I were total and utter outsiders as we came through together in the Scotland squad. And uh, the first day we met was hilarious. Uh, I was in a Scotland under under 19 squad or something. And I was sitting in this room because they stuck me in my own and I was reading the NME. And somebody said, oh, there's somebody coming to join you in your room. And I went, oh, I thought I had a room more. And they went, no, no, we're putting this guy in me. And I went, oh, God. So then he walked and he went, went, oh, I went, aye. Who's this? Sat down and opened up his newspaper and it was the sounds. So it was like the, another version of the NME. And we just looked at each other and went, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you play for? And he went, uh, Motherwell. I went, great. He said, I'm only part-time. I'm at Glasgow University doing maths. And I went, right, I can see why you put us together. <laughs> <laughs> and from that day on, from that moment on, and very similar dark sense of humour and incredibly dry sense of humour. His is much drier than mine and he's much more lugubrious than I am, but he's somebody who I, whose company I love. Do you have a favourite moment as a footballer? Yes. Um, I don't want to give too much away because so much of this in my book. Um, when is your book being released, by the way? I, I don't know. It's probably... I should really have asked that, shouldn't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've got the cover and everything it's all sorted but they're doing finished the legals today and uh, the typeface and all that stuff that I don't care about um, and the last thing is I'm just you know, collecting the photos at the moment um, and I've got them all and uh, the marketing people will tell us when they can release it okay, and, fair um, enough. Um, 
But the favourite moment, in actual fact, all my favourite moments are not on the pitch, which is surprising to most people. Uh, it is one of many moments. And I won't speci specify here. But it's people walking up and saying, thanks for that, Pat. I love that. You know, you made me happy today. Um, I made the effort to come out and watch a game. And you made it worthwhile. And that used to happen quite a bit. Um, there's one or two other moments that happen. It was one that happened just about a year ago in London. I was in a tube and uh, there was a black guy at the other side of the carriage. And he looked over and he just nodded. Uh, nodded back and he went, respect. And it was just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody um, remembered what I did and the way I used to stand up and the way I used to campaign about it when no one else was doing it. And it wasn't a big deal, it wasn't a big thing, but it was just the coolest respect. And yeah. was, oh, okay. That beat scoring or anything. <laughs> I must admit, we, we go to the games with some guys who are like late 30s, early 40s, who were teenagers around that time, that, that Tramia team were, were obviously on the cusp of the Premier League and League Cup semi-finals and those things. And a lot of them still tell us today, like, they'll never see a better tram side. They'll never get more enjoyment out of it. And they're so grateful that that was their teenage years watching football, which is most memorable normally when you're watching football, seeing the likes of yourselves and Morrissey and Aldridge. And they almost are probably a lot more negative now because they've seen such highs in a, in a weird way. Um, and we, we, I do get jealous hearing about that side and, and what, you, what you achieved and how you played. I mean, obviously, it was just the fun of it was really good. They were a good team. You think about, I mean, I go through that team in my mind. Tony Thomas went on to play for Everton Spurs. Um, you know, the two centre backs, McGreal went on to play in the Premier League. Um, Vickers went on to play for Middlesbrough in the Premier League. All three full left full backs behind me, because I played mostly in the left. I was trying there. All three of them went on to play in the Premier League, which pissed me off slightly. I'm thinking, hey, wait a minute, it's me that's making them look good. <laughs> passes in a day over lap. But, you know, Nolan and Jed, and just and everywhere I looked around that team, and the guys that didn't go into the Premier League, a lot of them had been like Aldo was world-class. He was one of the best scorers you could ever make. I mean, a real, no mucking about. I've played with the Gleishes, I've played with Kerry Dixon, I've played with you know, really Sharpie and all them. Aldridge is as good defensive as anywhere. He was unbelievable. And really, I've never, I don't think I've, I've never played with a better striker, a better finisher, very specifically, finisher. So you had a lot of good players around. And even the ones that, you know, Kenny Irons was a player who never went further than playing with Tranmere, really. But fabulous, fabulous player, fabulous player. And it was, I talk about one guy, like, uh, there's two guys I'd love to mention. Um, Chrissy Malkin, and he used to get the mickey taken out because he was lightning quick, but he wasn't the best touch. He did that himself. His finishing wasn't always brilliant, but he was one of my favourite players I've ever played with in my entire career because he was the most selfless runner. And because of his work, it made massive amount of spaces for all of us. And everyone was going, well, if he made a mistake, he'd get dogs abuse. And I'm going, he's making it for us. He's making it easy for us. He's, he's the man. And it's hard to see that from the sides. And then other guys, one guy's, you'll probably have the name Stevie Mungle. And of all the years that I played in football, he is the best I've ever come across for adaptability in a football field. 
absolutely no one has come close to being as good in every single position as him. And that's and you ask anybody out with Tramiel, they won't know who he is. But he is a bit well, the best I've ever seen at every position in the pitch. I um, played a charity match once against Kenny Irons and I ran about 20 yards to go and try and put him under pressure, which Ryan will attest to is not something I do an enormous amount. And he just rolled it through my legs. And I was, I think I was about 15 at the time. And I was, and Kenny Irons just must have been in his 40s. <laughs> and I just rolled it through. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. I'm just, <laughs> I was, oh, I was devastated. Um, he was an amazing, and considering if he didn't drink, what he could have done. <laughs> he, he was one of the guys who didn't, I don't think he wanted to play at top level. He was just happy being at the Rovers while he was there. He was just a, he was a top, top lad. And he used to always try and wind me up. He used to always try and, and he never got through, but he never, ever stopped. Uh, a lot of time for that guy. Um, we've spoken a little bit about, about your love of music. Who's your favourite current band? Current band? Oh, oh that's close. Well, up until recently, but they're kind of current. Camera Obscura are still around just now. Um, and they're a Scottish band who make the most beautiful sounds. Um, but I, I've got new bands every week. I'm finding new stuff. I mean, there's a new band recently, not new, but Cigarettes After Sex over a couple of good albums recently, and they're great. But I'm, I'm always, always, always trolling through getting new stuff as, as often as I can. And it's not always the best, best band, it's just a new track. There's a track I found out just a little while back called Mean Dream by a band called La Luz, who are from the West Coast of America. And it's one of the best tracks I've heard in my life. And it's just great. And I'm, I've still got that enthusiasm and love of, you know, new music. But I'm also very Catholic in my taste. I mean, I, I will, I'm not a snob about it. You don't have to be unknown to everybody else for me to like them. Um, and I do like going and finding old styles and old stuff as well that I, I maybe missed on the way by. Um, but I'm always on the lookout for new stuff and there's consistent new stuff. It's a wee bit, the slight sadness now that one genre of music that I was very, very keen on is, is kind of dying out a wee bit. Um, so it was a kind of, a kind of, not the indie rock, you know, the big loud indie rock stuff that you hear a wee bit in Radio 1, uh, but the kind of more, you know, left field indie rock, uh, indie pop even. Um, it's kind of getting a wee bit harder for those bands to make a living because uh, the homogenization of lots of area, other areas of music have just left no space. Um, and that's the sadness. Of, but hey, that's just life. It moves on. Uh, keep on looking for new stuff. What are your thoughts on VAR? I'm a fan. Um, I like it a lot. Um, I don't think it's working right yet. Um, um, and I think the referees have made a, the association have made a bit of a mess of some of the use of the rules. Um, but the concept of going back and getting the wrong results now is unthinkable for me anyway. Um, but that's purely as a footballer. You know, I'm talking as a footballer. Let me give you an example. Well, let me give you this. Here we a thought idea, right? See a margin comes down from Mars, right? And he says, oh, we have been watching you for many decades now, and you're all a very interesting race, but you all love this game of football. And every four years, you get a World Cup final, and, and it's taken billions of people have watched it, and billions of pounds are spent, and 
people have worked their whole lives to it and thousands of players involved and millions of people pay huge sums of money and all that. And then you get to the final. And out of interest, who do you let make the decisions in that final? The one guy who can't see it, i.e. the referee. The one guy who has not got the ability to see what actually happened by replay. So the whole planet is aiming for one thing and you will let the one guy who can't see the decision make the decision, the main decision. It's bizarre. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. I agree. Now, they're ruining some of the, the fun of it for the fans. They've also made quite a lot of mistakes for it. But you look down two or three years from now, probably even this year already, and many decisions that were wrong were righted in comparison to the, the ones that were wrong and stayed wrong. You've actually made decisions better. It's a pain and it's slow and they should be going over to look at the replays and doing themselves. And they shouldn't, they've overdone it in certain areas because they've, you know, they've just tweaked the rules in the wrong way. But it's early days. Uh, I'd say three, four years down the line, you will not be able to think about it. And the generation after us will laugh their head off at us fools who didn't have it. How do you feel? No, everyone doesn't agree with me, by the way. Don't worry. I, accept <laughs> I accept the argument against it from the other side. I do accept it and I respect it. Um, but you've got to go and get decisions right. It's not fair. I like fairness. Um, how do you fit Andy Robertson and Kieran Tierney into the same team? Yeah, exactly. Um, you don't change the entire team, entire squad and system around just to make it happen. That's what you don't do. Uh, there's no... Kieran's one of the best players in Scotland. He's a better actual footballer uh, than Robertson. He's a better footballer. Um, but Robertson's amazing what he does and his crossing's amazing and he's, he is a brilliant player. Our two best players are left-backs. We know that in Scotland. Um, you probably do stick Tierney over at right-back and he's perfectly good there, but he's nowhere near as good as he has a left-back. You can then change the whole team and put Kieran as left-central-back and that's probably okay and that's fine. But you then what you then do, you wouldn't put Kieran as one of two centre-backs. So you then need to play with three centre-backs. Well, maybe that doesn't suit you. So maybe you shouldn't do it. So in the end, maybe you eventually just leave one out. And it kind of doesn't matter which one because they're equal, equally brown and left-back. But in time, you probably on occasions leave one of them out. Do you have a, a favourite shirt that you played in during your career? Oh, what a good question. Oh, dear. Um, I'm not much a, I'm sorry to be a dullard here, but I'm not much a memorabilia type chap. Um, I've got a Tranmere strip somewhere. I've got a few Scotland strips. I've swapped loads of my Scotland strips for other ones. Um, actually, the first season with Chelsea is a strip that I still actually own, uh, and I kept that. And it's one of the few that I actually made the effort to keep because uh, it was this lovely silky blue thing with stripes in it. Um, uh, can I tell you, instead of answering that, can I answer it in a different way? Um, you can. I don't know, I don't know the, the, the... I swapped shirts sometimes at the end of games when I was international, but I never bothered to look who it was because I wasn't interested in the opposition. <laughs> and, uh, and in those days, a lot of times, we didn't have any names in the back. 
So anyway, I was talking to somebody recently, and I'd brought the shirts downstairs because I had to get some blue ones out. Just, no, just blue ones. So, and I found this blue one. And I, it was a French national strip. I'm thinking, I can't remember playing against France. I think I'd remember that. And I looked up, and I hadn't played against France. I couldn't get it, and eventually figured it out. It was a play for Scotland B against France B. I went online and found it, and there, there was this game, 1-1 up at Dundee, and I can't remember it. It wasn't really a B game. It was just named a B game. It was really an A game, because look at our team. That was our A team, without a doubt, right? And I thought, oh, well, at least I know where I got the strip. And I never thought about it again. And I was talking to somebody, and I told them the story online. And he said, what number's on the back of it? And I went, oh, I don't know. And I checked, it was nine. And he looked it up. Eric Cantona. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I had no idea. So about three weeks <laughs> ago, I discovered I've got Eric Cantona's French shirt. And that sums me up with memorabilia. <laughs> I, I kept very little. And most of the stuff I kept, I gave away for charity. 